This is episode three of the newest and best podcast on all things from the world of SaaS. It is, of course, the official SaaS to podcast brought to you by the godfather of SaaS, Jason Lemkin, and me, Harry Stebbings, host of the 20 Minute VC. And joining us to celebrate episode number three today, I'm so thrilled to welcome Mark Jean, founder and CEO at Cloud Elements, a cloud API integration service that uses a one-to-many approach to connect your application with entire categories of services through uniform APIs. As for Mark himself, he's one of the most experienced and skilled operators in the industry. Having previously been CEO at Channel Insights, he was also a VP of sales at Oracle and a product manager at AT AT&T, just to name a few of his many achievements. And in the show today, we discuss the fundamental requirements for a SaaS company to transition from a 50-person company to a 500-person company. What's necessary? What's required? How can we scale the hiring process? We also discuss how the lean startup methodology can be applied to SaaS startups, and we deep dive on the rise of the API economy. And we'd love to hear what you think of the show itself, so don't forget to leave a review on iTunes. We would be so grateful for that. Or you can hit us up on Twitter at JasonLK, at Sasta, or at Harry Stebbings. We'd love to hear what you think. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Mark, a very warm welcome to the show. We're big fans of the API economy here, so it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Absolutely. Glad to be here, uh, Harry. Thanks for having me. Now, I'd love to kick off today's show by hearing a little about your background and the origins of cloud elements. What was the kind of aha and origin story for you? Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, yeah, so Cloud Elements is my, uh, my third startup, and uh, I've had some uh, good success previously. And my previous company was a company called Channel Insight, where we would aggregate uh, sales data from you know thousands of resellers throughout the world. And we had to connect to their CRM and accounting systems to get that point of sale and inventory data. So as we were doing that, we were building a company that was aggregating the sales data. My uh, co-founder, uh, CTO Vanit and I were like, wow, we tried all these other tools like MuleSoft and Boomi and things like that to be able to do integration out to our customers and partners. And none of them were really lean enough for a SaaS company to accomplish integration. So we really kind of discovered the problem by experiencing it at our previous company, right? And that kind of gave us the idea that there was opportunities to, to find a way to integrate things more easily, um, especially for uh, application providers like SaaS companies. And in terms of cloud elements at the moment, your current status, how many employees do you have working with you? Yeah, we just passed the uh, the 50 employee mark. We've got about 52 people right now. So this is always a very interesting stage for me in the, in the SaaS sector, just in terms of it, it could be seen as the inflection point, the pivotal phase where where you have to transition from being a 50-man company to a 500-man company. And I'd love to hear what, what the pitfalls are that, that you think can arise and that you're trying to avoid in the process and what checks can be made to assure that this doesn't happen with, with cloud elements. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's a... Uh, great observation and it really is that point where you know as you start to scale up right the things you could just take for granted just walking around the the halls um is as a founder and pretty much have your fingers in everything and everything that's happening is not you know is 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 not the case any longer and you know and i I think the the key pitfall and i learned this at my last company when we grew over a hundred employees is that culture is not self-sustaining 
every person you hire or just one bad hire, one person who's different from your set of values and your culture or doesn't believe in those, therefore doesn't operate in a consistent way can really set, send you off the rails, right? So I think the, you know, the, the, the thing that I learned and found is that you, you've got to have a, you, you've got to early on before you get to the 50 people, you really have to establish that set of values as you're hiring those initial employees and it has to get owned those values by the team. So then as you're bringing in uh, new employees, you not only have the values, but then you have process that sustains those values, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Absolutely, it does. And, and, and then you said there then with those 50 first hires, it's crucial to get kind of the top tier level. So 18 players hire more 18 players. But what do you then look for to ensure that you do have the, the A-team VP of sales or the A-team VT, VP of marketing? Is, yeah. there any, is there any you prioritize? Yeah, well, again, I'll go back to that values discussion, right? Because it's, again, it's about not only, like, does this person have the experience, et cetera, but do they fit where how we operate as a company and how we make decisions? So one of our core values is iterate to success, right? It really comes out of, you know, the approach that we iterate and learn about everything, and we take do small tests to get there. So we test our hires, right, to make, you know, to see do they – apply that approach in life and how they do things where they think iteratively. And then, um, so not only test for that VP of sales to say, Hey, is this a guy who's just going to come in and want to, you know, build a hundred person organization right away and sit in a back room? Or is this a person who's really going to roll up his sleeves and test things, work ideas and, and fit into our culture and how we approach problem solving. So, you know, that's a, that's an area where you not only test when you hire, but then after you hire, you, teach them a process, a methodology for iterating and how we do it, right? And make sure that we have people who want to learn and operate in that type of uh, type of mode. We've seen a lot in, in the recent years in the startup world and the tech world, a higher fast, fire fast model. Is that something that you would particularly uh, condone or would you disagree with that as going against the culture? Yeah, um, I, I'm really more of a uh, slower hirer, and uh, but then be quick to fire if you don't get the right one. But I, I really think the the higher fast is just too costly. You can't make that. You can't afford at a smaller company to make many mistakes. So I really, you know, really of the you know hire slowly. Really put people through the test. Um, you know, we, every, every hire we bring on board has to, you know, go through a number of exercises, you know, depending on their role, presentations, problem solving, um, engaging in, in, you know, in our culture a bit to see if they really fit and people, uh, you know, feel like they can work with them. Do they, do they solve problems the way we solve problems? Right. And so I think that, you know, taking that time is, is important, but then, Hey, you don't always get it right. And then you have to move quickly to assess our, our people fitting in. And, you know, we, we've, um, um, a couple of people go after 30 days, right. You know, they, we got through our process. We just didn't feel they fit, but then move on quickly. Right. So you're not burning everybody's time and, and your money on them. And, and we said there obviously about getting those core first hires. How do you assure them with the next 450? Uh, quite a daunting thought. Um, how do you assure that those are of the same quality as the core execs that you hired at the first stage? Is there some sort of process or overview that you as the CEO would take to ensure your team remains a high enough quality throughout? Yeah. And that, and again, that's, 
I'll go back to that. You know, we have a set of principles and values, how we operate our company, right? And like that iterate to success value. We teach everybody and every team operates in the with using those principles and using the same methodology, whether you're, you know, we use an agile methodology in sales or marketing team as same as we use in development team. So by, by getting that next level of leaders kind of operating in a similar set of process, we then, you know, look to train them on how to interview consistently to hire others who will fit into those processes and fit into those values and the way they do things will operate by those, right? So it's, it's really getting that, you know, next layer to have a consistent view of, hey, these are the, these are how we operate. Now I'm looking for people who will operate this way as well. And, and you've previously proclaimed yourself to be a big exponent of this lean startup methodology. Do you adopt that to your hiring process and the transferable skills maybe within, within jobs within the company? Yep. No, absolutely. And that's, uh, you know, we, we want, you know, Lean Startup to me is about uh, how you solve problems, right? And, and the mode of, like I use that example of a VP of sales, a, v, a good fit for a, a, a company like ours, a Lean Startup company, a VP of sales is not someone who wants to just come in and say, you know, I've got it all figured out. I've used this process at the last company and this is exactly the way we're going to do it. A good fit for a lean startup is somebody who'll walk in and be willing to say, Hey, I know these things. I know these work, but I know I don't know this about your environment and I'm going to create tests to figure those out. Right. And I'm going to teach my team how to test things along the way as we learn. Right. Cause when you're first starting out, you know less than you know. Right. There's a lot less that you don't you know, understand about your business, then you do understand. And so that to me is the, you know, is, is kind of that foundational part of, of, you know, applying that lean startup mechanism even to hiring. And, and I mean, going back to the 50 to 500, you know, Reed Hoffman is, is a big fan of, of the fact that maybe not all founders are destined to be there for the entirety of the journey from, from creation to exit. Where do you stand on, on that thesis? Do you, do you agree with him that not all are there for the life cycle of the firm and have the ability and willingness to do so? Or do you think that founders are inherently ingrained in their company and can do it? No, I think there's uh, right people for, I'm a firm believer as well, that there's right people for different stages, right? That what makes you great at one stage of starting, building, creating, right? A culture and a process is not necessarily, and I've been involved in this, right? Where you, you, know, you get into hundreds of people and um, it's much more, you know, that <coughs> day-to-day you know, discipline, metrics driven, et cetera. That may not be what the core skill of the early, uh, you know, team is. And so um, I, I firmly believe you've got to, you have to be, have open and honest conversations about, um, I, and I have that even with my board, right? If all my board members, before I brought them on board, I shared my, here's my 20 lessons learned from being a CEO previously. And one of those lessons learned is you, I, I need to have um, clear conversations with my board about when they think I'm not the right person. And I want to support that. If, if, you know, people I trust are saying, hey, we really feel like we could grow this thing faster if we bring someone else or whatever, I want to embrace that, not fight that, right? And I, I just want to win, right? And I think as a, as a, you know, as a founder, you're really at the end of the day, if you really step 
take the ego aside. The, you know, the passion's about winning and whatever is the best team to win the game, to win your market, to grow that business, you know, big, best it can be. I don't want to ever stand in the way of it. Absolutely. And then talking of the lessons learned there as a CEO, you just mentioned with your board, you brought them lessons learned from your last company. One of them that you've, you've said before in public is that as a CEO, not investing in marketing and sales until you have something really small that works well. It obviously it doesn't have to be small, mm-hmm. but some Something that works really tangibly well before you'll invest heavily in it. So talk me through this then. How does this play out in your strategy? Yeah, and this is a lesson I learned by you know ramping up sales to you know dozen or more people before you really had a repeatable process right in place right. So you know what we we our sales team operates on sprint cycles just like our development team and two week sprints and we do a lot of A B testing in sales to figure things out as we go along and early on. Um, you, you don't know how to sell your product. It's the found, you know, I did all the early sales, me along with one of our other co-founders, you know, did everything. So before I was going to go out and hire a bunch of salespeople, we, we got a couple in who um, then, you know, tried to apply the process I used, but then had to figure out themselves what was going to really work, which customers were really were going to take off, how to approach them, how to send them that initial email, how to uh, what the sales process looked like. Right, we thought the sales process was was going to be completely different. Um, that it would be much more self service initially than what our sales process is now, where we get into proof of concepts and and do those regularly with clients. Well, we didn't know that, and the, the until we you know, had to try that. And then once you get, now we though can apply that process and figure, hey, we need sales reps who can manage these types of steps, get in and understand the requirements for the proof of concept, work with the customer to help them, um, guide them through um, having, you know, the successful team around that proof of concept, right? That's a different sales rep than somebody who's just taking an order off a website or something like Mm -hmm. that, right? And at what point then, and you said, you you know, it's difficult in the early days to know how to sell your new product. At what point did you, did you really navigate the sales process and understand what worked and what didn't in terms of customer acquisition? Yeah, um, it, it really took us, uh, you know, after we raised our initial funding, we, we figured out, took us about six, six to nine months to really get that process nailed down. We had two two people side by side working together. Who really we hired uh, two salespeople who were, believe it or not, collaborative with each other, okay. competitive but collaborative, and um, worked you know with our sales leader to kind of define that process. And once they were successful and they couldn't keep up any longer with their pipeline, that's when we hired the additional sales team and started scaling up. Mm-hmm. And we, we mentioned that A-B testing different channels and marketing techniques for the product. So what tended to be the most successful just in your past with your with Cloud Elements now and with startups that you've worked with in the future, in the past? Mm-hmm. Well, I think you know, and again, every every company company's different in terms of what you know. Every product's different in terms of what's best, and I think that's really first of all being honest about your product, right? If you know, there's so much pressure from like you know VCs to make sure your your product is kind of like you know self service and how much you know your selling cost is and everything else. But you have to be honest about what what it's going to take, which channel, 
how to do it. But one of the things I have learned over time is it's much more cost-effective to build a scalable company by having either OEMs, channel partners, et cetera, to sell your product versus building big, you know, expensive enterprise sales teams, right? You've got to raise a lot of money to build, you know, people who are, you know, having to walk in the door at customers. And, and clearly that's not unique, right? SaaS companies have learned that. But I really think uh, finding partners early on who can get you into companies, is, it can provide you tremendous leverage. We found that with other SaaS companies. So we don't sell directly to the end customer, the, you know, the end user integrator. We sell to these application providers who integrate our product into their product. And then, and then we ring the cash register every time one of their customers use it, right? A leveraged model. And then to have a little breathing time, I'd love to dive into a little short round of quick fire questions called the churn. Okay. We're going to call this round right. the churn. So the biggest challenge that you face today. Staying, keeping the product focused, staying focused, not letting, not chasing every sales deal that comes along and not chasing every dollar of revenue, but staying focused. Mm-hmm. What SaaS blog, podcast, newsletter, book is a must for you? Where, where did you say you learned the core of your learnings? Well, right now, what I my must reading every day or just about every day is Tamaz was Tungu's yeah, uh, newsletter. Brilliant. Yeah, his, it, it's it's awesome. Yeah, yeah. I, I've never seen somebody so prolific with such uh, uh, you know in depth practical information you can you can apply. And then vertical versus platform SaaS plays. What do you think? I love them all, but I think platform SaaS plays take a long time and a lot of money to build. If you can start and engage a market in a narrow way, like a vertical or a piece of it, that's a, you know, it's a, it's a more cost effective and a leaner way to get started. And then lesson learned most recently, what's been added to that list of CEO lessons learned? Yep. Well, I'm relearning the value of, uh, uh, the bowling pin strategy from Jeffrey Moore's Crossing the Chasm, you know, that seminal. Uh, Absolutely. Who does yeah. this? The Bible. <laughs> it is. It still is, right? You know, 20 years later or whatever it is. But um, that, you know, that using that strategy to select your next target market, right? You know, we've attacked our head pin with initially those application providers. And now how do we apply a good discipline in terms of the next target target markets we select fantastic well i I like the way i called that a little breathing time it seemed to be rather an intense four questions (laughs) but but let's go back to a more chilled environment now so i mean you've as we said before you you've exclaimed yourself to be a believer in in lean startup and how does this work out then for SaaS startups in particular with with traditionally very high burn rates well, I think there's, uh, you know, there's two approaches. There's the approach of, hey, I'll just throw money at a problem and figure it out as I'm going along, and you know, r- you know, raise thirty million dollars before you know what you're doing. I mean, frank, frank, frankly, I think, you know, I don't, I'm not sure I would have if somebody gave me thirty million dollars when we were just getting started with our Series A. I, I, I would have wasted uh, more than half of it because they want you to not keep it in the bank, right? The investors want you to spend it. Mm-hmm. So I really, again, I, I just kind of. Uh, you know, believe the, uh, you know, that pragmatic approach is I'll spend money on things that I figured out. I'll I'll throw resources once I figure it out, but until I figure it out, don't spend a lot of money on it. So 
Um, hence why I'm a believer that, you know, that lean startup approach and a lean start approach doesn't mean, and some I've heard even from some investors, oh, you believe in lean startup, you're, you're not going to scale fast enough or whatever. No, I don't think it's going to slow down our scaling. It's just going to, um, make us more capital efficient as we scale as my belief, because I'm all for putting money toward things once we get them figured out. Mm -hmm. And does the lack of SaaS exits greater than $500 million, say, concern you? I mean, what will happen to all the SaaS unicorns with with little IPO market and, and as we said, a high burn rate? Well, I think there's something called down rounds, right? So, um, uh, Ask Foursquare. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think we'll be seeing, you know, for some of those crazy valuations that have happened that weren't pragmatic, that weren't, you know, based on some principles, uh, you know, we're going to see a lot of down runs and down runs aren't real fun for the employees or, or investors or anybody. Yeah. And I think, you know, the bottom line is, you know, even some of the unicorns, you know, was, you know, they, they become like selected to have a lot of money to be the chosen one, but they don't all have the best product or the best approach to market or the best process and discipline in place. And at the end of the day, you know, great companies are built by, you know, executing and, um, you know, delivering. And I think, uh, you know, so we'll, we'll see an adjustment and we'll see more pragmatism brought to the market, which I think is a really a good thing. But exit, big exit, lack of big exits don't concern me because I'm not planning to, write, you know, raise $250 million to build a really good company. Absolutely. I completely, I completely agree. It, it, as a founder, though, when, when VCs and investors are puffing up your valuation higher and higher, and there's the potential for you to think this could lead to a down round in the future, what's your take then? Do you assert the sense of realism or do you allow the, the puffy valuations to continue? Because at the end of the day, in some cases, a, a good valuation can help the business. Right, right. Well, I, I'm thinking of the Silicon Valley uh, episode where they were like, no, no, go, you know, negotiate. We don't want that valuation. We want a lower value. I wasn't thinking of that at all. That was not coming. <laughs> so we don't So we don't have to deliver and meet the expectation, right? So, so no, it, you can't blame the entrepreneur, right? I mean, you know, if, if, if somebody's going to value your company at a billion dollars, um, you know, you, you can't walk away from that or turn that down, right? But there is a aspect of, you know, Part of it is though is is presenting yourself right and believing where you can get right. I'm I'm, I'm not. I guess I'm you know I, I I don't like the approach of going to my investors and putting numbers up there that I don't believe I can reach. Mm -hmm. And so I really do like to be grounded in something that I know I can get to because it's not real fun sitting in a boardroom and everything else when you said, hey, I'm going to do you know 500 million this year and there's no plan you have in place that really says how you're going to get there, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that. You know, there's a balance, right? You know, because, you know, on how you present yourself as an entrepreneur and, and you know, the balance between how aggressive you are versus, you know, how on the ground you are as well about can I get there? Absolutely. And I think I think one area that's very interesting to touch on and to, to finish the interview on in particular and end it specifically with cloud elements is your team has integrated to hundreds of APIs and you, you have a very broad perspective on what SaaS companies are doing. So what advice do you have for SaaS companies and startups regarding APIs? Is this something that executives should really be caring about and spending a lot of time looking at? Yeah, no, great. Uh, yeah, great question to end on. Given we're in the uh, API integration business, yeah, the I really look at anybody starting today, or even if you've got a successful application, is you know think API first. 
right? Before you think about the, you know, um, you know, or build your UIs and everything else and, and, and build the services behind them, the APIs behind them, because then, you know, the, the best products and, and Salesforce has a massive set of APIs, but what's, what Salesforce has done right is everything you can do through the UI in Salesforce, literally everything you can do through APIs. And you can get, um, you can create custom objects or fields through APIs. You can do everything. And so therefore, Salesforce is, you know, the most, is, is the most integrated product, not because, you know, and you know, what's the chicken or the egg? Is it most successful because it created an ecosystem or is it the other way around? You, you can argue both sides, but one of the things that certainly helps them continue to, to dominate is that they um, truly have a, you know, a robust set of APIs. They not, may not all be, be the easiest because they bought so many companies, but so I recommend for, you know, SAS, you know, executives at, at SaaS companies, because we see this over and over again where APIs are an afterthought or they're, you know, it's a subset of their functionality. So you really can't create good integration scenarios because what is happening now with the fragmentation of software markets, right, where there's so many players in every segment is I believe the most successful SaaS applications are the, the ones that can play nicely and work out of the box in their ecosystem. If you're a new marketing automation system, you've got to work with all the leading marketing automation systems like HubSpot and Marketo and Eloquid, etc. If you don't work out of the box with those, somebody will buy the other product that does. So therefore, to make that integration scenario work, you have to have good APIs. So to play in that ecosystem, even if you're not leading an ecosystem like Salesforce, but play in other people's well, You've, you've got to have that foundation, and that's going to be critical for success as software markets continue to fragment with more and more companies entering them. Well, Mark, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. It's been an absolute pleasure hearing about you and the incredible journey of cloud elements, and we look forward to following it very closely in the future. Thanks so much for joining us. You bet, Harry. Thanks. I really appreciate it, and uh, enjoy the discussion. Please hang up and try again. And a huge thank you to Mark for coming on the show today. It was absolutely amazing to hear his story with Cloud Elements and how he is scaling the company. And if you can't get enough of Sasta, the podcast, then do listen to episodes one with Tiago Paiva at TalkDesk and episode two with Andy Locke at Zero. Or if you're more a fan of the written content, then head on over to Sasta, where there is everything you can think of on SaaS, from hiring to scaling to ARR to MRR. It's all there and it's all done by the legendary team at Sasta. So check that out at sasta.com. Thank you so much, as always, for your continued support. It means so much to us. And we'd love it if you could take the time to leave a review on iTunes. It would make a huge difference and we'd be so grateful. Or you can contact us on Twitter at JasonLK, at Sasta, or at Harry Stebbings. Thanks so much for tuning in and we look forward to seeing you in the next episode.